Hello, friends, and welcome. This is episode 18 of Syracuse Sports. My name is Brent Axe. Great to have you here on Syracuse Sports, which is presented by our friends at Krause Health. Find a career you'll love at Krause Health, the exclusive healthcare partner for Syracuse Athletics. Got a good one for you today. Don McPherson, the rightful owner of the 1987 Heisman Trophy. Get out of here with that Tim Brown stuff, but... We didn't talk about that today as much as I would love to spend an entire podcast talking about how Donnie McPherson's 1987 Heisman was basically stolen from it. But we'll save that for another time. Don was great. We talked quarterbacks. We talked Garrett Schrader. We told stories from his. Well, he told the stories from his time as a Syracuse quarterback. But I love the insight that he had about the position, about Schrader as the quarterback for Syracuse, about to have a moment here with Clemson, North Carolina, Florida State coming up there. Schrader's moving up the ranks. As a matter of fact, he's chasing down Don McPherson for one statistic, as we'll get into here shortly. So Don had great insight on that. But what I love about doing these interviews is you kind of have one thing in mind and one thing leads to the next, and you kind of go places maybe you weren't expecting to go. You're going to hear some of that. We're going to talk transfer portal, NIL, what seems to be somewhat of a strained relationship between former Syracuse football players and the current administration in some ways. And Don does really important work with young men and what he calls aspirational masculinity. And it's important work. And I think you'll enjoy hearing the work he's doing there, the results that it's, that it's getting at this point and the work he's got to continue to do in that department. So I'm going to get out of the way here. And get Don McPherson in here. Let me remind you of this first, though. Saturday, after the Orange take on Clemson, Emily Liker and I will do a live post-game show. We're going to do it about 6 o'clock or so after our post-game festivities are wrapped up at the JMA Wireless Dome. So if you follow us, Syracuse Orange Sports on YouTube, if you follow our Facebook page, Syracuse Orange Football on Facebook, you'll get it live as it happens with your comments included in the podcast. If you do listen to it in podcast form on all the places you're listening and watching now, you will still get it on Saturday night. But if you want to join us live, come on by about six o'clock. Just look for a notification or hang out and check us out. And all those places will be streaming on Twitter as well. You can follow me there at Brent Axe Media. Without further ado, let's bring in the true winner of the 1987 Heisman Trophy, the great Don McPherson. Don McPherson. I'm going to start off with some numbers here, okay? Got my uh, All right. got my yellow pad here. Old school. Going old the official school. document, yes. Exactly. Official documents. The official documents. 5,812 yards. That is your passing yards number in Syracuse football history, which still ranks top five in the history of Syracuse quarterbacks. Garrett Schrader, current Syracuse quarterback, 5,057 yards. He is 755 yards away from you, so... Of course, barring injury or anything like that, he, he's chasing you down. How, how does that feel, by the way, to hear you're still in the top five? I'm very surprised, actually, to, to be in the top. I would have thought that guy trade had, had passed me by now. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. I, I was just saying this to somebody uh, recently is that the players are just better now. The game is better. The game is faster. It's more wide open. I mean, if you stood me next to guy trade, and I've, I've met the young man a couple, couple of times, he towers over me. <laughs> So you know, I'm, I'm, the game is better, and and I'm I'm surprised Garrett's still there. I'm I'm hanging on top five, 
um, I wish him well. So hopefully by the end of the season, I'll be I'll be number six. There you go. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today, Don. Amongst uh, It's always great to talk to you, first of all, just uh, other topics that we will get into. But take me back to when you were being recruited by Syracuse and what the conversation was like about quarterbacks because you're still in the top five and the other four names on the list, I'll just go through it here, Donovan McNabb, Marvin Graves, Ryan Nassib, Eric Dungy, counting up to one. Those are obviously all modern era guys. And of course the game has evolved and changed and there's much more emphasis on the passing game, which contributes to that. But all those names are basically starting with you and counting up here. So what was the quarterback conversation like when you were recruited to come to Syracuse? Well, it it was two things, Brent. If if you keep in mind, I was just talking to someone about this yesterday about the history of Syracuse University and African-American quarterbacks. We had a black quarterback, Wilma Sadat Singh, before the position was called quarterback. And the other school that people mention very often is Nebraska, but Nebraska had black quarterbacks who were running the option. You know, J.C. Watts and all those guys who were running the wishbone, uh, and, and and even Taylor who came up, you know, around my age era. Uh, but at Syracuse, we were doing more power game. Uh, we were doing some option, but not a lot. And so the opportunity to come to Syracuse to be a true quarterback was was on the table. It was it was you're going to be allowed to come here. And obviously we're going to run some option, use some of your athletic ability, but the opportunity to, to, to run some I formation, ISO, um, you know, counter trade kind of stuff and, and throwing the ball off of that um, was definitely an opportunity. And that was appealing to me because I wanted to be able to throw the football and, and be a real quarterback. I was going to say, what kind of quarterback were you in high school? Was it a combination of the both running and passing? Did you want to come in here and, and sling it? What, what was the, the mind frame there based on, on what you, you were you were doing in high school? Yeah, we, I'll never forget, you know, the guy that came up in high school before me, uh, his name was John Chisholm in, in Long Island, West Hempstead. And he was a magician with the split back option, veer, triple option veer that we stole from the University of Houston at the time. My high school coach went down there and studied Bill Yeoman's program. And, and so it was a lot of split back veer option, triple option, but I had a pretty good wide receiver. We had a good, a good tight end. We threw the ball and we threw the ball a lot in, in high school. So I, I got a chance to do both. And that was, again, that was the appeal. I wasn't a true passer. I never had, you know, it's funny. I just did an interview with, with a sports writer in Philadelphia because I never had a true quarterback coach until I got to the NFL. And, and uh, Doug Scoville was my coach. who was a longtime BYU guy. And, um, and, and, and Philadelphia brought him in to, to coach Randall Cunningham. In fact, I got the benefit of having him as a coach. But when I got here, Bill Maxwell was my quarterback coach for most of my years. And he wasn't a true quarterback coach. He's more of an offensive coordinator kind of guy. Uh, so, I, you know, I learned as we went. And, and then when, when George D. Leon came in, we just kind of opened up this crazy offense. It, it, it predated the spread, but we were doing everything the spread was, is trying to do today. So we've evolved to what the passing game is today. And I feel like Garrett Schrader is just like, if you're going to construct somebody in a lab, yeah. you're coming close to what Garrett is. Cause you brought it up a minute ago. He's a big player. He can bounce tackles. That Purdue game was kind of an extreme example because Purdue kind of yeah. gave him an easy pass to run all over the place. But the, the, the RPOs and the fakes and, when he gets an opportunity to take off and run, he is so hard to stop. But the passing game is evolving there, too. So how have you seen Garrett kind of come into his own as a quarterback based on what these offenses uh, have to be in college football today? 
Yeah, and, and the offenses require a lot of quarterbacks. But and what they require a lot of quarterbacks to do is to make fast decisions. And and I think that's where the only if I if I had one sort of criticism of Garrett is that he's got to make fast decisions. And I think that's why he runs the ball so often out of out of the you know a scramble situation is because of his first reads that that day sort of hesitates a little bit. He's got to make that that fast decision. When he makes that fast decision. You're not going to find a better arm, a stronger arm, uh, a more accurate guy than when he makes that first decision. And 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 that's what I, I, I liked what happened in the second half against Army because I felt like they were giving him that ability to make – have, you don't have to read the whole field. Sometimes coaches can really complicate things, and, and even people who watch football from a distance can complicate things because there's a lot going on. You know, I learned from a, a defensive line coach of many years ago who said, listen, we've got 11 guys, that's six on one side, five on the other side. Pick the side where we're weakest and go attack it. And I think if, if Garrett Schrader does that, he is dangerous. And when he, and to your point, when he takes off and runs, I, I think even defenses, you can watch him on film, he is deceivingly fast and extraordinarily durable. And he's got good, elusive moves. He runs the ball. He's a really smart runner. Uh, and I think it's, it's one of those innate things you can't teach. He's unlike any other quarterback, right, in my opinion, right now in college football, when he takes off and runs because of – not just every his speed and his size, but he is, he knows how to run. He's an elusive runner. Now, uh, I think it was this week. It was recently. I asked Dino Babers at a press conference how much, basically, liberty Garrett Trader has to run the offense. And I don't know if you know this about football coaches, Don. They can be a little paranoid about revealing <laughs> things. But I, I liked how Dino They're answered liars. the question. They're liars, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> I liked how he answered the question, though. He's like, I'm not going to tell you that because I don't want to reveal it to my opponents. But what he did say, hitting on what you just said, is he's right more than he's wrong. And I wonder if that's because of the continuity he has with Jason Beck. So let's go back. Remind me, in your time at Syracuse, how many different coaches did you have? Offensive coaches. You mentioned George DeLeon came in. And I want to ask that because I feel like one of the reasons we're seeing what we are from Garrett and could continue to say it the rest of the year is he finally has some continuity with Jason Beck. Now Beck was not the OC last year, but those two know each other. They trust each other. Right. But Garrett has had a lot of offensive coordinators through his career here and at Syracuse. And that can affect what you can do in terms of that decision-making we're talking about. It, it can, but I'll, I'll tell you something that's more important than what than, than having um, a right guy over many years because I had I had um, uh, Bill Maxwell and then we brought in a guy uh, for for a year who was in, not a good guy so I'm not going to mention his name and give him that thing um, and then and then um, then George D. Leon came in George D. Leon was um, a legend in the coaching ranks in college football uh, the first guy at the clinic, the last guy to leave, he was a, a workaholic. He just never stopped. He was a character and he coached the old line and he was about five foot five and, and 120 pounds soaking wet. And he coached <laughs> the old line and he had the biggest booming voice and he was a crazy man during practice. You could hear him. I was just laughing when one of the old linemen I saw him last week, Turnell Sims, and we were laughing at they would go and he and Blake Bedars, they would have pre practice before the rest of us showed up for practice. The rest of us would be walking onto the field. These guys are already drenched. And there's, there's De Leon screaming at these guys and going crazy at them. I would go into offensive line meetings because we had a young old line. And I would love to just listen to things De Leon said. He's brilliant. And he, and he had tremendous enthusiasm. And Brent, here's the difference. 
The first time I had to deal with George DeLeon in an official capacity, not talking about practice, he was our offense coordinator, but in a game when he was talking directly to me one-on-one, was on headset, the very first game I had him. I'm trying to think what game it was. Um, it had been in 86. And he was as calm. He's calmer than I am talking to you right now. I mean, he was... The crazy man is calm now. The crazy man in game time, because his philosophy was you get him ready, and this was kind of Coach Mack's philosophy, you get him ready during the week, and then on Saturday you let him go play. And DeLeon was so calm on practice and during in that first time in, in headsets, and I was like, wow. And, and, and then I trusted everything he had to say. And I think that's the piece that you're talking about. When when Garrett Trader goes out there and he can he has Jason Beck in his ear and he trusts what Coach Beck is here is seeing and telling him. He trusts what he's seeing and telling him during the game. And the coach tells you there's nothing better as an athlete than when a coach has been yelling at you and telling you to stay disciplined on something and then you do it in the game and it works. Oh, you're like a you're like a puppy that just found you know, <laughs> like, like you just found a guy with the treats, right? You're gonna follow that guy no matter where he goes, waiting for him to drop another crumb. And 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 that was what what Delion was for me. And I think that's the, the the continuity you talked about with Jason Beck now having a little bit more authority. Now was the OC uh, and the guy who can help make make those decisions for Garrett. Now those guys, I mean, here it is. What is it? Wednesday morning, whatever day it is, a week it is. Those guys are sitting down right now with their feet up on a desk, looking at film and saying, "Hey, this is what they're going to try to do to you. Here's what they're going to try to do to you. Here's when when they're going to try to do it. This is what it's going to look like. Expect it to come at this down and distance, this time of the game, this field position." And then all of a sudden, Garrett Trader, that thing starts to happen on the field. Now the game slows down for him. So, Don, you are on the '84 team, right? Yes. Syracuse beats Nebraska, and that was a huge moment. But it, it took a couple more years for that to really come to fruition for everything we saw in 1987. I feel like Garrett is on the cusp of having that moment. Now, last year, of course, Syracuse starts 6-0, and and we were talking to you and a lot of your teammates because it was the first time since 1987 for a lot of things. And unfortunately, the second half of the season didn't pan out partially due to injuries, including to Garrett Schrader, by the way, who got beat up in that Clemson game. He even said this week, Don, he's surprised he made it through that game that he was so beat up, right? So I feel like he's on the cusp of his moment. And I want to talk about that in a second, but I want to go back to you. When did you have that moment as your as a quarterback, as a, maybe a big win, or you kind of knew this thing was coming together? Was it not until 87, or did you sense it before that? You know, I, I talk often about the, the loss to um, to Rutgers in '86. Um, we we should have beat Rutgers. We played them at home. The first drive, we go down the field, score a touchdown. Everyone's like, "Oh, Syracuse football is doing great." You know, to your point. Um, and 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 then we end up losing. And Coach Mack that Saturday, uh, or excuse me, that, that Sunday, told the, the the coaches to stay home. He was gonna he was gonna run a film session on Sunday. Uh, the offense was supposed to show up at like a six, six o'clock defense was there four before us. And when we got there, they had already been in film study for two hours and the projector was off and Mac was just ripping them to shreds and we can hear them from outside the room. And we're all waiting for our turn to go in and coach <laughs> back went through the, that one series that we had it was probably like a seven play drive down the field, score a touchdown and Mac ripped every single player to shreds. No one went got out of the meeting unscathed. It, it turned out to be a two and a half hour tongue lashing from from the head coach, and that to me was I, the turning point going into '87, because what he talked about was 
how we prepared and how we did the little things right and how we each one of us was so dependent on the other to do their job and and prior to that i don't know what what we were thinking to tell you the truth i think we you know we were a little this you know kind of a, a program that didn't really have a, a kind of a sense a north star and after that um you know i there was no moment for me personally i the louisville start um in in 85 was probably you know obviously that was my first start and and coming off of two injuries in 83 and 84 and, and so that was probably a significant moment when i realized i could play college football uh, but that moment against Rutgers for me was when our team came together and said, we have to do different Monday through Friday if we're going to win on Saturday. And that and that extended to we have to do different in January and February if we're going to do better in, in the fall. So here we have Garrett on this m- moment here with Clemson coming in, North Carolina and Florida State to follow. Like these, th- this is the creme de la creme in yeah. the ACC. Clemson's not – air quotes Clemson, right? When you look at Clemson, you see a two and two record. It kind of throws you off. But that, as Dino Baber said earlier this week, is still a championship level roster with all the talent. They gave Mm -hmm. Florida State everything they could handle last week. Florida State didn't even have the lead until they took the lead and won the game in overtime, right? So I think you got to take that into consideration. But I swear to God, Don, before I even knew I was going to talk to you this week, I told this story to, to my colleague, Emily Liker, by the way. So I said, listen, I feel like Syracuse has got to have a McPherson more moment in this game because you come into 1987, Penn State, that play just punched Penn State right in the nose and they were just, they were done from the moment that game started, right? I feel like Syracuse has to do that against Clemson, right? They're good at stopping the run. They're a physical football team. Is there something that Beck has not shown or has not shown a lot that Clemson's just not going to see you deliver that haymaker and you kind of go from there. I, I feel like he's just right on the cusp of, of something like that. I, I think it's, I don't think it's the haymaker. I think it's, it's more of, uh, of a pounding that, mm. that, that um, because Clemson is, you, you know, this, this Clemson team, obviously everyone now they're two and two and everyone's going to talk about the last time they've been this bad. And, and now they're out of the national championship hunt. And now that, the, you know, the, the baton has been hand, handed to Florida state. This is a Clemson team that Dabo Sweeney and everyone thought was a top 20 team, a top 15 team with no, with, with not a lot of activity in the transfer portal. So with the guys that he recruited, he believed this was a good football team, which means they are a good football team talent wise, top to bottom. They still have the talent. Right now, their biggest thing is, do they believe in themselves? And a big play, to your point about that Penn State moment, that was a big play, that was a big moment, and that was a shocker, and that's exactly what Penn State was afraid would happen, is that we would get the crowd in it. I, you know, I remember the telecast, because I, I've watched everything 20 years later, and Brent Westbrook <laughs> was saying, Joe Paterno's got to get the crowd out of this before the game started. And, and the first play of the game, the crowd is like on the field, literally as, as loud as it can be. And, and so I don't think it's going to take that moment to break Clemson's spirit. What's going to take is if Syracuse gets the ball and they drive the length of the field, mm. six, seven, eight, nine, ten plays, get first downs, get first downs, show that you can get first downs, you can move the football methodically against Clemson, that's going to break their spirit more so because that's just beating them down. Right? There's a difference between having the big play and shocking them and then be, or beating them down. And I think if, if they can beat down Clemson – Get a couple three and outs early, uh, and and get a, a sustained drive. I mean, look what look what Army did. Army came in and and that first quarter, 
I mean, remember the first quarter of of, of uh, Western Michigan? I believe the first half of Western Michigan was like three and a half hours. It was ridiculous. Like, right. Penalties yeah. and everything else. It was a yeah. sloppily played game. Army comes in their first quarter. What'd they do? They went, I think they had a ball for like nine and a half minutes. That's exactly it. They said, it's our ball and you can't have it. Yeah. You can't have it. You're not getting it back. You can't beat us if you don't have the ball. And so I think Syracuse needs to do the same thing against Clemson and say, listen, if this is our place. You can't beat us unless you have the ball. And we're going to possess the football, get first downs, and keep your offense off the field. How do you think Garrett handles not having Gatson, not having Isaiah Jones? I've liked what I've seen. I, and I wonder what you've seen from other guys like Donovan Brown and Numari Hatcher, but no offense to who we've seen so far. This is Clemson. And I feel like if you're going to do what you just said, and if you're going to sustain a four quarter game against Clemson, who's really good at stopping the run, including a running quarterback, this could be the game. Maybe we start to see the absence of two of your top targets, particularly Gadsden. You know, I, I don't like saying this because it, it's, it's not, a, it's not a fun thing. You know, college football and football period is a, is a rough game. Um, and and so, very often, if you if you depend on and I I, I cringe with with preseason superstar talk in college football because mm. of the nature of the game. Um, and and if you if you went through the season thinking it's going to be straight to Gadsden and that's going to be the duo, and then you lose that and you go, oh snap, what do we have left? Like what are we going to do next? Hey, this is time for one of those younger guys to step up, right? And and uh, Damian Alfred or one of these other guys to step up to move that guy into that slot position. Here's the other thing about Gadsden. They, they list him as a tight end, which I never liked because I didn't think he was a, a true tight end. <laughs> I I, I'm a John Mackey guy, right? For two months, <laughs> there you go. Block down, block down for half the game, and every now and then we'll throw the ball to you and you go roll, roll over a, a linebacker or two. And so what 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 ends up happening with, with Gatson out is maybe they bring in a real tight end. Maybe they bring in a tight end who can help in pass protection if, if they're having troubles with, with, with pass pro. Um, and, and then that frees up your receivers to, and this is where I think, again, I mentioned this a moment ago, simplify. You know, you know, they did a lot of things with Gatson in that slot position. I do this because that means he can go just about anywhere like a fish, right? And and uh, but but simplify with your other younger receivers. Move somebody else in that slot position. Bring in a tight end. I I think that this offense benefits from simplification. Uh, benefits from from Garrett Schrader having to make make that read right now. Let the ball go right now, and, and then and then you know scramble or run off a of design. Um, so I, I think sometimes when you lose your superstar skill guy, um, and I do this in quotes because I, I, I say this all the time, there's there's no such thing as the best player in college football. If that left tackle doesn't do his job, Garrett Schrader can't throw the ball in time. You know, uh, you know nobody gets the ball downfield, right? LeQuinn Allen has no holes to run into, all those things. And so um, simplify, let Garrett Schrader see some reads quick and get rid of the ball quick. And that helps you wide out as well, right? They're not, they're not trying to – they're running quick, crisp routes, um, and, and they know that if the ball's not there on time, they become a blocker. That's a great point, and I think Alford can play the slot. They have moved him there a little bit. He's such a big target. He's, that, he's definitely that first read at this point. He had a huge game last week. He's yep. coming in very confident. So the offensive line too, Don, I wonder what you've seen there. I mean, I was fortunate to – uh, it's fun to say this name again, David Wollabaugh Jr., yeah. who is at Syracuse. Unfortunately, he's out for the year with that injury. It feels like they're getting healthier. We'll see if Kalen Ellis and, and Joe Moore are back in this game coming up. They've been kind of iffy, maybe coulda, shoulda, woulda. Uh, we'll see if they're back in there. 
But when you have a guy like Schrader who can extend plays, even uh, Dabo Swinney was saying it this week, that extra second, you know this as well as anybody, that extra second, if you either have to take off and run or just run to extend the play, it feels like he still has that, even with the offensive line still, maybe still kind of trying to find itself. They had to replace three starters coming into this year, and, and that's a process. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's two two things about that, I think, Brett, when you're talking. One is there's, there's no other position in all sports where the sole job is to protect other players. And O-linemen is special. And I, I, I have a special place. Obviously, as a quarterback, I have a special place for O-linemen. But I think they're the smartest guys on the field. Um, and, and they're the only group that all five have to work together. Right. They have to work as a unit. That's why Joe Gideon was so masterful um, as an O-line coach, because he taught those guys how to work as a unit. So when you have injuries on the old line, that hurt, that hurts that continuity, that hurts the communication, uh, some of the, the communication that guys just know they don't even have to talk to each other. They've been they've been next to each other all day long, excuse me, all week long or all month long, however long they keep a, a unit healthy and together. So they can they work together well, they tag off of each other really well. So that's that's the first thing thing I think about when, when I think of old line. The other thing you mentioned, it, you know, reminded me immediately as you were talking about that extra second that, that Garrett Schrader may give an O-line because he could run. I immediately thought of the relationship between Randall Cunningham and Chris Carter. And Randall would, would if Randall would take off and run. Randall's first look very often is, you know, Keith Jackson was my rookie year. Keith Jackson had 71 catches as a tight end. It was just ridiculous because Randall would give to him. Like I said, he was that first read. And Chris wanted the ball. And if Randall's first read wasn't there very often, he would take off when he was when he was a younger quarterback. And Chris wanted the ball, so because Randall was taking off and running earlier than probably he should have at times, instead of going to 14 yards in his route, Chris would go to 12, or he'd go to 10 because he wanted to be open sooner. He wanted the opportunity right. to get the ball sooner, yeah. and so Chris was breaking off his routes. And, and I remember in film study, like. You know, literally, you say, Chris, why are you breaking off here? He goes, well, I want the ball home, boy. Like, throw me the ball. I'm here now. Right? <laughs> and so, and, so and, and, and as Randall matured, and as the offense matured, all of a sudden now, Chris is getting to his depth. Now, the, now the separation between Chris and the relationship with, with Chris and the running back coming out of the backfield was better, better distributed into the secondary. And so sometimes, what a running quarterback can do is it can make your skills and your position a little bit lazy because you know you don't have to be as good. You know, you know, you can get away with, and I, I'm, I was guilty of this as a quarterback. There were times when I knew I didn't have to worry about the online because I was sprint, sprinting out and, and I was going to just do it on my own uh, because I know I could, and that doesn't help a team. And, and so I, as I said, you know, there's no such thing as a single best player in college football or any football game uh, because it does require that team. So, so I, when, you, when you said that about the online, it's true. They can get away with things because Garrett's going to give them that extra second. But at the end of the day, you want them to be sound fundamentally, and that means they have to do their job no matter how much skill Garrett Schrader has as a runner. You brought up Randall Cunningham. I've got to tell a real quick Randall Cunningham story. I was there. Everybody's got a Randall Cunningham story, right? I'm sure you got a million of them. But Bill's Eagles, I want to say it's 1990 or 91. Yeah. And Bruce Smith comes around the edge. Yes. Greatest pass rusher arguably in the history of football. I don't know if you know the play I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. In the end zone. Oh, you know. Yeah, you know. Randall Duxon. Oh. <laughs> Bruce Smith, like, was literally on his back. Yep. Randall Duxon, and then yep. I can't remember who the receiver was, but he's all alone at the 50-yard Barrett. line. Barrett. 
it, and, yep. And all, all of a sudden you just see this ball floating in midair and he's all alone. And it was like a 95 yard touchdown. Yeah. I will never forget that play it, as it, long it, as I live. And, and that was Randall would do stuff like that on a regular basis. And, and he was one of the most, you know, I was, I was behind him. I was a back and quarterback then. He was on the front cover of sports illustrated as the ultimate weapon. Like, you know, how demoralizing it is to be a backup to the ultimate weapon. <laughs> but he was he was incredible. He would do things like that all the time. He was an incredible athlete. Unbelievable. Uh, a couple other things, Don, while I got you here. Kind of zooming out a little bit here. I wonder what you think about, we just saw some announcements recently. Syracuse, I mean, you drive by the, the Lally Complex right now, you see a lot of cranes, you see a lot of dirt, you see a lot of construction equipment. They're getting ready for... Uh, that the next facility coming in in 2025, and it kind of feels like you know Syracuse is playing catch and catch up a little bit here uh, mm-hmm. in terms of their their peers in the ACC, but at least they're doing it. What, what have you heard and, and seen, and, and how encouraged are you to see that Syracuse has got some shovels in the ground and, and doing some things facilities wise here? You know, you, you just mentioned something that I hadn't really thought of um, in in terms of facilities and and the catch up. You know. 20 years ago, it was the arms race and facilities. And, and you saw people putting up, you know, all the new indoor facilities, the practice facilities and all those those different things that, that people are doing. And I've been in some of the other places like Texas and other places in Alabama and, and their facilities are just off the chart in, in all the sort of the, the, the you know, all the perks and, and all the bells and whistles. Nowadays, the, the game is, is unfortunately is NIL. And I, and I think NIL is, is also scary because um, we, we're just in the infancy stages of it. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of other things in terms of antitrust stuff and, and uh, some lawsuits from players to players. And I mean, I, I just think that, that the NL landscape is, is going to be really, really messy before it's, it makes sense. And, and yet that's the game right now. And, and so, you know, why is it a, a player choose a particular school? Might not be facilities anymore. Might not be, it may be what kind of NIL relationships, what kind of NIL structure. And in that regard, I, I you know, having conversations with John Wildhack, the athletics director, um, he's optimistic and, and excited about the NIL uh, path that they're going down. I know they've got some new relationships on campus and uh, and that's going to be the difference maker. You know, young kids are going to want to see that, that the school's not sitting on its hands when it comes to, to NIL and they're going to, it, at least create an environment because I think this is the thing, you know, the, what, what people don't really understand is the school really isn't supposed to be involved in NIL. Otherwise it's right. not, it's not an individual name, image or likeness. Um, and so, so there's this really tricky balance that's happening right now where the school has to make moves that provide opportunities for student athletes to, to, to go make some money uh, in the NIL uh, market. Uh, but the school really can't, facilitate that and and so i think that's where i I think that there's a a lot of trickiness to it um where again i guess i I should should take that back i think the school can facilitate it but not actually make the deals and so there's a lot to be to be done i think that uh, john wildhack is is doing a great job of of trying to get syracuse in the right position it's funny because dino brought that up this week i asked him about the facilities and what you said there about nil and facilities it's almost backwards right and here's what i mean by that in the NIL game, you can get one Carmelo Anthony type player and you are set, right? That's your team. It's a little more complicated in football. Even if you land the big time quarterback, you still need, as you said, the team around him. 
the basketball team here has got the facilities, which Dino was talking about this week, like when he finally wandered over into the Mellow Center about a year after he took over. He just couldn't believe what he was seeing. And now he's finally going to get that. The football team, I still think, Don, in this day and age, even with NIL, still needs the facilities. You still need to wow with the weight room and just all the modern amenities that kind of you know get the kids bug-eyed when they're coming here on their on their uh, their official visits and their unofficial visits. So it's almost like the opposite is, is going back and forth here, and now at least it'll, it'll even out in that department. You know, you bring, you bring up another a point about facilities that, that I think is, once again, it's not just the wow factor when you walk into a building. As I said, I've been in some places that there's a lot of wow factor in some, some buildings. But at the end of a year, does the place feel like home? Mm. And, the, and the reason I say that is, Again, I don't know what those basketball guys do. They they go over there and dribble a ball and shoot, and there's only a few of them. I don't know what their lifestyles are like. But football guys, I was just saying this to some students last night, I never saw campus after, after noon uh, during the academic year. Forget about just during the season. I never saw campus. I was in Manly Fieldhouse, now in the Lally Center, all day long. That place had to feel like home. And here's where I say that, that the transfer portal – is a bigger problem than NIL. NIL is going to work itself out. And, and like I said, I think there's a lot more to come uh, with, with NIL. But the transfer portal, how do you keep guys home? How do you get guys and keep them there? If you have, and I, I said this, you know, I had this conversation with Nino a couple of years ago about how to recruit a kid uh, who, who came to you through the transfer portal. And I was thinking, how do you not recruit a kid? How do you coach a kid? How do you coach a team that has, you know, half the team didn't start here? Or, and, and they're new, and they're replacing maybe a guy that you were buddies with um, that, that you came up with, that you said, I remember my high school roommate, my college roommate for four years, we met in high school. Walt, Walt Mosley from Ellenville, New York. We said, hey, we're going to go to Syracuse, and we're going to be a part of that backfield for the next four years. Well, all of a sudden, Walt leaves, or I leave, and all of a sudden, a different guy's there. I said, man, you're not the guy that I met in high school. And and, and, the, other, and the continuity of it, and that there's another whole other issue about graduation and education when it comes to transfer um, that that concerns me, uh, but I think it's really hard in this day and age to get that team continuity with transfer, and I I believe that's why I believe Devil Sweeney uh, does not jump into the into that portal because he believes again facilities, but he also believes in his culture. He has a very strong sense of his culture, and and bringing guys in and out of it is is hard to maintain that sort of cultural identity. Don, where would you put it here in terms of? I thought of this because you mentioned talking to Dino, right? How would you characterize the involvement of alumni, football alumni, what that kind of, for lack of a better term, that, that the kind of union is like, what your feedback is for the current program, you know, d- depending on what that is, there's been some, some donations that players have made to the new complex, and that's great, but just in general, do, do you feel like you have a voice in what goes on with, no. with Syracuse now? No, and I think that's always been, you know, for, for however you want to look at it, it's always sort of been sort of the MO at Syracuse. Former players don't have a big voice. I know there's a bunch of guys who live here who, who don't feel connected to the program, and uh, that's unfortunate. And uh, ho- however, that doesn't mean that that we're not together. We were all, there was about, you know, 25, 30 guys, actually maybe more than 40, 50 guys who showed up um, and got together the night before, two nights before and the night before. Um, Coach Ben w- was was put into the ring of honor, and so there's and if you saw that field, a bunch of guys they were still there. The loyalty is there. 
Um, you know, generationally, my generation, I'm 58 years old, my generation, the guys who are just starting to, to get into that, um, that stage in life where they can give and they can feel like they can be a part of it. Lally is, is just a generation and a half, you know, ahead of me. So uh, we're getting into that place where we feel like we can be, have, a, have more of a presence. And I hope that, that the NIL generation or era um, will help foster some of that, some of that reaching out to guys who are, you know, recently graduated or, or guys like me who are, you know, 30 years out um, to, to get them more involved because we really haven't been. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like you could say this is a more recent thing, but it's always kind of been the history at Syracuse that um, we have really reached out a lot to our, our, our alums. That's too bad, and, and I think people would like to see you guys more involved. It's one thing to be at games and have a presence, like you said, get back together with your teammates, but I feel like I, I could give a lot of examples here, but I feel like other schools, that connection is more prevalent, not just in what they do to contribute money and contribute things that we physically see, like the Lally Complex, but just the, the spirit, I guess, for lack of a better yeah. term. So maybe the connection's not there with the university, but you do you still feel like you have a voice in reaching out to the current players maybe in a way, or does that have to improve as well? Well, uh, you know what? I, I think that's up to the head coach, to be honest. I, I think a, a lot of things, you know, there are times when I've been down in Lally or, or Manly, and I, I don't go poking my nose around the football the football wing. I, that's up to the, the head coach about who he wants around his program, and, and I think that's that's a really important thing to maintain his, his program. And so um, I've had some – connection with some of the guys. I, I did a podcast with, with the mob last year um, or a That's couple of right. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, last year. And um, uh, and, and got to know a couple of those guys. Um, and then you, you see them around campus. I'm around campus a lot. I was on campus last night. And um, and, and so you see them around a little bit. You see them down in the alley. And, and, um, but unfortunately, you know, there, there are other guys who live here in town and, and, you know, some guys even, you know, work in and around campus who don't have that kind of connection. Um, and I would I would love to see it because I think I think at the end of the day you're right about the brotherhood and the family. You know I see guys. You know I I, I saw Dave Warner um, uh, a couple weeks ago. He came up. I guess I guess it was the the Western Michigan game, and I saw him from like a hundred yards away, and I knew who he was just because of his body type, right? And I said, Hey, pop. <laughs> He's like, how'd you know it was me? I'm like, because your body hasn't changed since you were, you know, <laughs> I can spot him right away. That's great. Right. And and to, and to see those guys like like him and and, and Bill Hurley and, and those guys, I love that connection. I love the connection to the, the quarterbacks who, who came before me. And anytime I get a chance to see Todd Norley and, and uh, those guys I played with with Mike Commence and those guys I played with, um, it's always great to, to to be a part of it. And that's that's where the giving comes from. That's where the the support for the life, lifelong support of the program comes from. By the way, I should shout out. Uh, I don't know why this name just popped in my head. He followed you, Todd Vilcox. We got to oh, get yeah. him in that conversation. Yeah, his birthday was yesterday. His birthday was yesterday. Oh, happy birthday, yeah. Todd! Yeah, there yeah, you happy go. Birthday, Todd. Yeah. Well, yeah. By the way, had a pretty stellar NFL career. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Which people you forget. Know, yeah, yeah. He was and, and and talk about Todd like that program because of the way DeLeon coached it. Todd stepped right in. He had as good a year as I did. I, I'm pretty sure statistically the next year coming in. Um, he put up some great numbers, and he had Rob Moore and, and some some great rat backs. He still had Drummond and, and Daryl Johnson in that backfield. Um, yeah, the, Phil Cox had a, a one year starting role, and 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 really and really did a great job. 
Don, before I let you go, I always like to check in with you and, and something. It's it's amazing what you're out there doing just on, on a day-to-day basis. And it's it's aspirational masculinity and how you go and you talk to football teams and athletes and uh, not just athletes, by the way. Uh, all, all I, I saw on your social media talking to one of the SU fraternities in, yes. in recent months, right? So tell us about your, your mission there and what you're doing and, and how it, and how it's going. So, Brent, I've, I've, I've been in the space of doing work around men's violence against women, sexual and domestic violence prevention for nearly 30 years um, when, I, when I retired from football in 1994. And the work I've always done was always about engaging men to prevent violence against women. And as I say more recently, I've been doing the work that women and survivors of, of violence have asked men to do. I haven't been doing the work that our boys need. And, and what I mean by that is that we've been talking to, about masculinity bo- to boys but not about their whole masculinity. We've been talking about the, the ways in which boys' behavior or men's behavior hurts women. We haven't been talking about what do we want for boys? We haven't been talking about it, and that's why I use aspirational. What do I want for them? So, so that they are living, I'm not one for, for sort of like uh, cheeky acronyms, but, I, but I'm using this one because I think it's accurate, is I want them to live authentic, whole, and evolving lives. And, and and evolving masculinity. And that's AWE. I want them to live in awe of themselves and the boys around them. And that awe is, how do you live your authentic self? How do you live your whole self? And, and the evolving piece is, I'm 58 years old and I'm still adjusting to what life is like for me right now. And it's very different than I expected. It's very different than, than um, you know, even even moving here to Syracuse and, and um, dealing with the things I'm dealing with in my personal life. But I did not expect to be at this point in my life. And so I had to evolve. And I have to continue to grow. And so the message that I'm delivering with this aspirational masculinity, I'm doing some work around New York State, um, contracting with one of the New York State agencies um, and, and doing work in promoting this aspirational masculinity. How do we talk to men about what we want for them? Not what we want them to do for others, but what we want for them to truly grow in their wholeness and their authentic selves. It's a great message. And I'm wondering... It- there might be uh, too many to pick from here, but is there a particular success story that's that sticks with you? Maybe you talk to somebody and they circle. Well, yeah, you're you're right. For those not watching, you're, you got your hand up, right? <laughs> yes. So that's that's a great example. So tell me that story. Maybe I don't know. Maybe a, a team or a, somebody you talked to who they circled back in life and said, "Hey, thanks for that message. It really affected me in this way." Um, I will tell you, since I've, I've been talking about aspirational masculinity in the way that I have, um, I literally was at, I was at Ithaca College a couple of weeks ago, and I had a couple of young men literally say to me, you saved lives today. Wow. Because no one is talking to boys about this. And, and we've been ta- telling them, this is a generation of young men who've only heard masculinity referred to as being toxic. And I re- remind people that before we use toxic to talk about relationships or masculinity, we talked about waste. I watched the story today on on uh, you know on News One about about you know toxic waste in, in our water supply and in our and our, our, uh, our aquifer. And so, uh, when it comes to toxic waste, we want to separate that, and re- remove it from society. And and so this is a generation of boys who haven't heard it. So so to that point, I was with a group of young men last night. Uh, it's called the Men of Color Initiative on campus of Syracuse. I was with about 22 young African-American men of color. And I heard men talking about, young men, college men, talking about therapy, talking about the, the, who do they talk to when they really need to talk. 
and 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 how they need to do that for each other as a brotherhood and and this was just a sort of a amorphous group of guys from from various parts of campus um who were part of this this club essentially and i and i heard them talking about things that really mattered and every time i'm in that that happens and it happens frequently uh believe it or not is is that i think about the people who don't think that boys and men care about supporting each other in a loving way care about talking about things that they were raised not to talk about like feelings and how they how they feel about things how they navigate emotions how they navigate relationships and we have we've been relatively silent on on giving them the exact language so so when you ask me about you know success stories almost every session i do now you you mentioned fraternity there was a fraternity on campus at syracuse the young men told me they have what they called cry night, where they actually literally would would come together on on certain nights and just talk about their stuff. And if someone cried, it was okay. And right, so they started calling it that. Right. And I hope I'm not breaking their trust in saying that, but I won't say what fraternity was. But but these guys are really talking about how they support each other emotionally and psychologically. And um, and I think we 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 haven't done a good enough job of of being very deliberate in that education with young men. Uh, and so that's the work that I'm. I, it just you know sometimes I. I I'm thrilled that I get a chance to experience it um, and now trying to grow that message with young men. That's incredible. Keep up the great work. And for those that don't know, Don wrote a book. Uh, you can check that out. Just uh, look up Don on Amazon or any of the places you get your books and you can check that out and uh, Don's social media and you can see what he's up to and, and that important message that, he, that he's getting out there. And we thank you for getting the message out here today on Syracuse Sports. It was so great to catch up. Thanks for the time and sharing the stories and talking some ball with us. And, uh, you know, we'll do it again down the road here. But thanks so much for coming out with us today, my friend. My pleasure, Brent. I appreciate it. And go Orange. Our thanks again to Don McPherson for joining us here. Great stuff from him. And, uh, hey, great stuff if you are a subscriber to this podcast, Apple YouTube, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you subscribe. Thank you for that. That's the best way to get new episodes delivered right to you of Syracuse Sports. If you are an Apple subscriber, please leave us a review or review us any place you want. Leave some comments on YouTube. We love getting your feedback on the show. Speaking of feedback, don't forget to take advantage of our voicemail line. That's 315-552-1964 if you want to get in touch with the show or on Twitter or X, if you prefer Brent Axe Media, you can email me, B-A-X-E at Syracuse.com as well. Thanks for hanging with us, friends. Just a reminder about our live Syracuse football postgame show following Syracuse and Clemson here on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and you will get it in podcast form a little bit later on if that's what you prefer. But if you want to participate in the conversation live, we'd love to have you on Saturday after the Orange take on Clemson. We want to thank Krause Health for sponsoring Syracuse Sports. Krause Health is the exclusive healthcare partner of SU Athletics. Thanks for being a part of Syracuse Sports. We'll talk to you next time, friends.